Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 189 of the Motorcycle Man podcast and another great interview for your listening pleasure. Hey, thank you for tuning in and listening to the show. And of course, thanks for listening to all the Motorcycle Man episodes. If you'd like to help the show out, you can go over to our website at MotorcycleMen.us, and there you can click on the Donate button if you'd like to help us out with a singular PayPal donation. All that money goes to uh, helping us maintain and produce these shows. Another way you can help out is go give us some feedback. You go over to iTunes and give us a rating. And while you're at it, send us an email to MotomenPC at gmail.com or go to our contacts page on the website and send us a note there. We read all the email, and if we feel like it, we'll comment on our next show. So for the best of motorcycle jeans, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear Company. Dave and the crew over there make motorcycle riding jeans that will outperform that radio pair you've been wearing and most other brands available. And not only do they perform well, but they are also the best-looking and most comfortable selvage jeans you will ever own or wear. And for further protection and style, get yourself that California riding shirt. Comfortable, safe, and it looks absolutely stunning. I wear a pair of tobacco riding jeans and the California riding shirt each time I go out. They feel good, they look great, and they give me that extra security when riding that I want from my gear. And now available is their new McCoy riding jacket. It's very attractive, water-repellent, waxed canvas jacket with armor. It's got a flannel lining. Underarm vents and airflow sleeves. So that's the McCoy riding jacket. And as always, all tobacco gear is made here in the USA. So that's Tobacco Motorwear Company. And there is a special link just for motorcycle men listeners who want to order from Tobacco Motorwear in the show notes and on the Motorcycle Men website homepage. Or call them at 747 666 5741. And when you get them on the phone, you tell Dave and the crew that the Motorcycle Men sent you. Make sure you use that coupon code Motorcycle Men when ordering. The Motorcycle Men is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. The foundation was started by Stage 4 cancer survivor David Calderella to help other families who are struggling through the personal, emotional, physical, and mental and financial struggles that come with cancer. If you'd like to help out and be a part of something that actually makes a difference, donate today to David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. Go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. Links will also be in the show notes. Viking Cycle is another great retailer for motorcycle riding gear and accessories. Right now, get 15% off when you enter your email address and enter the coupon code on any order. Quality leather and textile jackets, pants, vests, gloves, and rain gear for men and women. That's Viking Cycle at vikingcycle.com. Now, back in July of 2017, I interviewed Wayne Mitchell and Jake Hamby, who were part of a team of military veterans who were going to travel by motorcycle from Alaska to the southern tip of Argentina and go through the Darien Gap, not around it, through it. At the time, they were still planning and preparing for the journey. And since then, today, I am joined by Wayne Mitchell and Simon Edwards, two of the riders who took part in the adventure. And they're going to tell us about how everything went during the filming of Where the Road Ends. 
Gentlemen, good to have you back on the show. Wayne, I know you've been here before. And Simon, I want to welcome you to the Motorcycle Man podcast for the first time. So for those of who don't know out there in our listener land, uh, why don't you tell us about the trip, uh, where it started, and who was involved. But let's start with where it started. Now, as I understand uh, from all the everything I've read and all that and from our previous interview, you guys started in Alaska in the Arctic Circle. Uh, continuously from Alaska to the southern tip of Argentina um, and traveling through the Darien Gap uh, by land as much as we could. So um, in order to make it through the Darien Gap in the in the dry season, we had to leave Alaska in November. So kind of the two major challenges for the trip um, was getting through Alaska and Canada in the wintertime on a motorcycle and then getting through the Darien Gap uh, between Panama and Columbia in the dry season. And we ended up um, sort of before the trip started, we were planning it. Um, we met a, a young guy who was a former um, Army combat camera operator, and he wanted to come along and film uh, the entire trip as part of a documentary. So the trip and the documentary are kind of uh, joined at the hip, and and that's uh, we started November 11th. 2017 and finished in april of 2018 did the timeline go as you planned pretty much yeah uh i i think we had uh better expectations that the dry season in panama would actually be uh better than it was we had a lot more rain when we got to panama uh and i think uh november the november departure in alaska proved to be challenging and that it was you know 20 below when we we started so it was <laughs> great so the original yeah. intent was was be uh, was a, it was a team made up of all veterans now was that the actual team that started yeah we had um so simon edwards was a team medic um i was sort of the team leader i guess um and oh and so it's had, your fault uh, yeah yeah <laughs> It was my idea kind of started, um, well, I've been kind of researching it and thinking about it for 20 years now, but, um, the, uh, so myself as a team leader and then, um, Mike Eastham, uh, was, a, and Rich Doring were both guys that I'd worked with in the military. Um, and so the, that, that, that was the team that started out. And then we had, uh, um, uh, the only non-veteran on the team was uh, a guy named Lou Browning. He drove the support vehicle. Um, we had a, a, a van that followed us with the camera crew. Um, but then Jake Hamby and Alex Mann, they were both uh, still photographer and vide videographer uh, for the documentary. They were both veterans as well. So, um, yeah, that was the, the core of the team there. Oh, great. Now let's talk about the uh, briefly. Let's talk about the bikes you guys used and the equipment involved uh, overall. And in, 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 in a nutshell, how did the bikes perform? I, I thought uh, amazing. Uh, we used Kawasaki KLR six fifties. Okay, uh, they're pretty rudimentary, but they're easy to fix, uh, easy to maintain. The size is pretty appropriate for a blend of on-road, off-road, and the kind of mileage that we had to cover. Oh, great. All right. And they, also, they also took a sidecar pretty well. Yeah. Um, we used a sidecar, you know, for 
I don't know, probably a third of it. Yeah. Yeah. So mostly the winter portions. <clears throat> right. I, I would say I would say between the extreme cold and the damage and punishment that we did to them in the Darien they held up pretty well, and I mean, they really can be fixed with bailing wire and duct tape. I mean, they're, they're good, <laughs> that's the kind of motorcycle you need, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. So I've I've I followed this blog that was on Revit, and it outlined parts of your trip, and, and so Alaska seemed—I'll use the word fun. So so let's start there. Uh, in, in Alaska, what were the conditions like the first day as you were preparing to depart? And what like the conditions through Alaska? Uh, I think the thing that I noticed the most profoundly was the lack of light. There's you know maybe four hours of light, and temperatures are twenty below in Prudhoe Bay, and it's always blowing sideways there. So I, I think what I noticed the most was that there was such a limited amount of daylight that you had to get things done while there was light, and then the rest of the time you were working in darkness. No, when did you leave again? It was November you left, right? November 11th. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you're going to have that. Okay, yeah, that time yeah, of year. You know, we started, what, 150 miles north of the Arctic Circle, so, yeah, yeah. about hours of daylight. Dark so is I, the uh, order of business then. Right, and so that I think that was the most profound thing that I noticed the most. It was just, you were, it took so much longer to get anything accomplished. From getting the bike started to getting underway to even simple maintenance tasks just took on. Oh sure, oh yeah. You know, I spent uh, I spent two years in Iceland, and much to <laughs> what you guys were doing, uh, you know, uh, when you're when you're above the Arctic Circle, it, it's going to be dark that time of year a lot. You know, so getting yeah. anything done outside is just virtually impossible. Uh, you know, anyway. But uh, did you notice your, that a condition improving the further south you went? Oh. Yeah, well, so the the darkness, obviously, but, um, I mean, one of the things I want to point out is that, um, it, you know, riding a motorcycle, you're, you're inherently traveling, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour, so you have that sort of wind chill factor sure. on you, and that's compounded when you're uh, in 20 below weather. I mean, any exposed skin, any crack, uh, any gap between your gloves and your jacket or your waistline or your the especially your neck and the helmet um anything that's exposed to that kind of temperature is going to freeze really quickly oh sure um, so for me i i was really reliant on the heated gear i was really reliant um i wrote that article for revit that you're referring to and and i think that was um you know because i kind of like Having grown up in Alaska, I was really acutely aware of the fact that, you know, frostbite really sucks. Um, <laughs> and, and that was that, that along with the light, the lack of light, both of those conditions improved as we got further south. We kind of but, but you know, we we left Alaska was actually uh, the warmer of the two. Once we got into the interior of Canada is when it really got cold. Really? And yeah, and we were also, I don't know, four or five days into the trip by the time we hit sort of central Canada um, in the you know British Columbia uh, Yukon territory, and it just—I don't know if it was because we were on the bikes already for four or five days and it just started to take its toll. But to me, that seemed the coldest. Um, was the terrain flatter and more open in Canada? 
Well, we went through the Canadian Rockies. Oh, okay. uh, and there were a couple days that, that were, you know, probably the funnest riding of the sidecars uh, was in, in, in the Yukon Territory where we were going through the Canadian Rockies. Right. Um, it was cold, but it was nice riding and pretty decent, clear weather. It's spectacular scenery, but it, <clears> just the, the toll it takes in trying to generate enough calories to stay warm, stay awake, stay riding, get camp set up every day, and then get up and get moving again. Just, it was, it, it definitely, we were we were happy to get further south. Well, that must have been miserable for you guys. It'd be a hard day of riding, and then now you got to set up a tent. Yeah, well, it wasn't just a hard day of riding, but, um, I mean, I, having a sidecar on your motorcycle, uh, especially the ones that we built ourselves, right, um, it it was like wrestling a gorilla around every corner. It was just really exhausting. And like I said, there was really only one day where we had kind of flat, twisty roads that um, – that were a little bit icy where you could sort of drift around the corners. That was the only day I enjoyed having a sidecar on the bike. So yeah, yeah at the end of the day, it was just exhausting. I bet. And then eventually we did get the further South we got, we'd come into more logging traffic and it, it just was plain dangerous to be oh, really? riding a lot of times. But there was a, there was that one day there where it was just, we had the whole highway to ourselves essentially. And mm-hmm. it was beautiful, twisty, spectacular scenery. So bitterly cold. I saw in the blog there was a couple photographs of somebody getting pulled out of a ditch by a pickup truck. Did you uh, did you guys have that kind of thing happen a couple times? Yeah, that, <laughs> mostly that, Simon. That might have been me. Yeah, <laughs> might have been me. Uh, we, that's why we refer to Simon as our stunt rider. Okay. We, uh, we kept joking that um, because we were making a documentary, we needed some exciting points in uh, in some moments of tension. So Simon would. Um, we joked that Simon was doing it on purpose, but uh, yeah, he had, actually we all ended up in the ditch at one point. I think um, just if you hook the if you hook the, the the sidecar wheel in the snow in that snowbank, you're you're going in. There's there's not much you can do to pull it back out. Oh, uh, how many times yeah. did you do that? Uh, three, I think. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. took a little bit of pra- practice to get it right, right? Yeah, I had some practice. <laughs> as some far pretty- as as far as it goes, they're, they're pretty spectacular wrecks too. Because you look in your rearview mirror and you just see a giant tuft of snow and gloves flying and him flying off the bike, and you see the bike buries in the snow and it's pretty spectacular to watch. Full on yard sale. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you get any video of that? I, I think we got I, some. I think yeah. there's some okay. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> now, as far as it goes for your clothing and going through this area, were you guys wearing one piece suits at least? Uh, no, I think everybody was wearing two-piece, but we kind of cobbled together pretty much everything that we thought. We had a lot, between the four of us, we all had some degree of Arctic experience. All right, okay. Everybody was using a combination of mountaineering gear, heated motorcycling gear, and, and stuff we just knew would work. So what I, like Simon wore pretty much a full um, belay suit. Uh, over it was over your riding gear, wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. So for me, I wore uh, thermal underwear, head to toe. Then I wore my heated gear. Then I wore my Revit riding gear. And then over the top of the Revit riding gear, I put on um, 
a full body rain suit to keep the wind off. And then at one point on top of that, I had like Carhartt coveralls on the, on my legs. Oh, that'll do it. So yeah. And, and with the heated gear running. So, and which that, and that was one of the challenges is running all of that heated gear on a 650 engine. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now uh, I noticed your helmets were typical dirt road, off road dirt helmets. Not the enclosed full face helmets. Did that present a challenge? Well, they were in the Arctic. We actually wore snowmobile helmets. Oh, okay. All right, there you go. Yeah, they were full face, and they had their challenges. They oh. they would uh, they would they would instead of just fogging up inside, they would actually get a coat of like rime ice on the outside of it. and oh. inside too. Inside. Your breath would a lot of yeah, times just your breath would freeze the inside too. Oh, so that was a challenge. Oh my. Now, did you have communication systems on these on the helmets? Yeah, we used uh, two-way radios um, made by Rugged. Basically, it's like a it's like their racing system. Okay. So we had um, mics uh, and and headphones in the helmet, and then a push-to-talk button on the um, on the handlebar. Oh, okay. So we talk among the bikes, and that was. Uh, that was that was helpful because um, the camera crew was also recording all that most okay. of that audio. I know we. It, it kind of proved to be key too if, it, if somebody got separated or sure. actually someone did actually have an accident in Canada, so we could get you know, notified of it right away and come back in the head. If somebody went into a snowbank, you know, yeah. you know, it came off the bike, maybe. Um, yeah. Did you find? With regard to those communications, and why would, why didn't you guys pick something like a Senna unit or a Cardo or one of those? Is it just reliability? Yeah, well, so I I actually ride with a Senna um, Bluetooth. Yeah, so do I. Um, I mean, I I I love that company. It's really you know they they not only do they make a good product, but they're um, really active in the motorcycle community. But um, ultimately it came down to our ability to record the audio off of the Bluetooth reliably. All right. Um, yeah. And we just couldn't, we couldn't reliably get, get it back to the camera crew. Oh, so, I understand. Um, and then over, we had, we had instances where we were riding maybe separate, especially down like Mexico and South America where we were riding at distances of over a half mile apart. Oh, yeah, the centers wouldn't have been able to do that, right? Right. So I have to assume that the easiest part of the entire trip was going through the southern part of Canada and the U.S. Did you get any challenges through that area? Uh, well, okay. So in Canada, once we got into the southern part of Canada, it's instead of uh, – Instead of snowing, it turned to rain. Oh yeah, that's not much. Better. And we, a couple of our routes got shut down because they had pretty severe flooding in in the southern part of Canada. And then uh, it was, I'm, I don't even remember where we were in Canada, but we decided that we were going to get up and push uh, to make it to Portland, Oregon, because we had some family meeting us for Thanksgiving. So we ended up riding probably our longest day, maybe 700, 700 miles. miles I think. Wow miles in the pouring rain yeah we got and the funny part was it was raining on us in canada we crossed the border into washington and it was like beautiful sunshine we're like oh (laughs) america is welcoming us that lasted about 15 minutes and it just opened up and rained all the way into portland oregon (laughs) um 
when do we have? I guess we had our last. Our last bit of snow was in at Mount Shasta. Um, we dropped the sidecars in Bend, Oregon. And okay, I was going to be able to ask you that next. Yeah. So and then we crossed into California, the northern part of California. We camped out one night and woke up woke to up a, snow. To snow. Yeah. So, it's but that small though. Yeah, it didn't last for very long. But um, yeah, and then we just breezed through. We we've all, you know lived in the u.s and ridden up and down the west coast so none of us really had uh we did a, a little bit of zigzagging um just for a couple you know we stayed at a, a friend of ours um, motorcycle camp out near uh uh just north of san francisco and went out to fresno um to a uh mike eastham had a, a camp out there that he had worked on so we kind of zigzagged a little bit but for the most part we just kind of Hit the, hit the freeway. There was a little minor celebration when we got out of the Arctic gear, that's for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, how was it? How about the celebration when you guys ditched the sidecars? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, they were super happy to be rid of them. They're, they served their purpose, but riding sidecars is a unique, uh, yeah. unique but, thing. And you have to have a, you have to really want it. Now, sure. at, at that point, how many miles had you ridden with the sidecar? Well, probably about 5,000, Yeah, I would say. Wow. Somewhere so, around there. So now you ditched the sidecars, and now you're on a regular motorcycle. Yeah. That throw, yeah. that throw you off at first? No. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know how to – well, like Simon um, Simon said earlier, you know, it, it's it's just like liberating. You know, for being a, to be a motorcycle rider uh, and to get back on two wheels is just yeah. a um, – it brings everything that's beautiful about motorcycles back to being a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. It's in the corners now. All right. All right. What would you do with all that gear you were carrying on the sidecars? <clears throat> um, well, so we so the sidecars were outfitted with Denali uh, auxiliary lights and uh, winches and a cargo box, which had our Arctic sleeping bags Um just most of our cold weather gear. So we left actually that left that in, in Oregon with uh, some friends of ours yeah, stored it. And, and yeah, cause we didn't, you know, we didn't need a big giant, you know, 20 below sleeping bag. We didn't need giant Arctic tents or any of that stuff. So, right. um, that was another challenge at that point was to make the right gear selections. What are we going to yeah. need for the next four more months? Oh, sure. Oh Yeah. Now, at this point, you decided to go through, uh, you have to go through Mexico and, of course, into uh, Central America. What was the decision behind going down through Baja and crossing over? Oh, man. Ah, okay. I, I think, <laughs> Wayne, I think two reasons. I think Wayne will support me on this is, is um, Baja's magic. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful, amazing place to ride, um, just full of history and, and uh, with spectacular scenery. Uh, and it's one of the remote, most remote areas of Mexico and one of the safest. So it kind of, and it was right south of San Diego. It was like, it was right there. Might as well do it. Uh, right? <laughs> and si- so Simon, Simon has been, um, has been racing down in Baja for years. So ever since I'd known him, I've been listening to his stories, but <laughs> my dad grew up in Southern California and he would, uh, he'd go down to Baja in the sixties and seventies with his dad riding and, and riding motorcycles and fishing and so my 
one of my one of the stories I grew up with is my dad telling me about him and his buddy taking hardtail Harleys in the '60s down the Baja Peninsula. So I grew up with those stories in my head, and I just it just was it was irresistible to go go down the Baja down the Baja Peninsula. I don't think there was any way we weren't going to go. <laughs> All right, down the Baja. <laughs> so overall, how was the ride through Mexico? I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. the people were great. The the drivers were excellent. I mean, um, I think that they're, they're probably the most professional truck drivers. Um, the roads I th- I thought were pretty great. I mean we we didn't um, we didn't get off of the beaten path too much. I mean we kind of zigzagged a bit through the through the country, but uh, we followed. For the most part, we followed the coast, um, stayed at a couple of neat little coastal towns. Mm-hmm. I think was, I thought it was a really great experience. I mean, um, the and the border crossings in Mexico were were relatively easy uh, compared to the rest of Central America. So, I mean, I really enjoyed. And, I, and I thought it was a great introduction <clears throat> to to Central America. Sure, because it, it you know you, it was a fairly easy first international border crossing with a language barrier uh it was fairly easy to to get the bikes down the whole country Mm -hmm. and then a good introduction to the rest of central america so now you've got honduras and nicaragua and costa rica and panama and all these countries ahead of you as you're going through central america was your anxiety building because you knew what was coming i didn't feel like the anxiety built because we knew what was coming. It was I, more anxiety provoking because you have to cross so many borders in such rapid. Oh, really? Space. That was more of a concern than the Darien Gap? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I think the gap was always looming, you know, yeah. on the horizon. That was, that was where the biggest sense of relief came was once we got, like the whole trip felt like a different beast once we got through the Darien. But yeah. um, for me... There was a little bit of anxiety because I was kind of helping produce the documentary, and we had a, a little bit of anxiety going into Honduras. Yeah, um, we were concerned because we'd heard a lot about drones being confiscated. We'd heard a lot about cameras being confiscated, and we ended up <laughs> we ended up having this really weird experience where <clears throat> we showed up at the border on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, rather, and. So there were our, the border was empty. I think we were probably yeah. the only vehicles. There were maybe one or two other vehicles going through, and um, we ended up getting a border crossing agent got reassigned from his post to come down and basically because he spoke, spoke yeah, really good English. <laughs> so they basically said, "Hey, come down, and take care of these guys," and um, and it just kept getting later and later in the day, and I think it was. I was around 4 or 5 p.m., and uh, this border agent says, hey, I'm going to get – I'm coming off my shift here in about 30 minutes. Would you guys um, give give me a ride home? <laughs> like, what? He goes, yeah, can you give me a ride home? I only li- – I live about two hours down the road. And we were kind of, like, baffled, you know, <laughs> like, what? So he goes, yeah, as soon as um, – you know, we're just waiting for your vehicle to get x-rayed and scanned. And we're like, well, why do they need to x-ray it? Oh, just look for, you know, things that you're not supposed to have. Then we got really concerned. Right, yeah. Um, And the process ended up taking like another half hour. And 
now this guy is going into overtime and he's still at the border crossing and um finally he pulled some strings and was like oh yeah don't don't worry we, we don't have to go through the scanner um but we have to give this other guy a ride home too so, <laughs> so, so our camera guy is there in the van sitting with these two border agents we're all run rumbling down the road and and like uh, the border agents are sitting on top of bags with our drones and our cameras and stuff that we sort of like made a, a rough attempt to sort of hide. Um, they're actually sitting on that with no seatbelts and rumbling down the road while we take these guys home. Um, but that was, so that was how we got into Honduras. Yeah. Now we're, I, I hear stories about border crossings from other world travelers. Did you have a, a lot of difficulties with the, border crossings like with all of your gear and everything involved i wouldn't say difficulties it it, it got more complex because of the amount of camera gear that we had mm-hmm. and the number of people that were traveling you know with camera crew and riders and and it it was slow yeah, i wouldn't say it was slow. difficult um for the most part we had enough spanish language uh skills and so, I mean, the you know, the border crossing officials, like, we didn't have anybody, you know, trying to take bribes or anything like that. I mean, it, a lot of it is just sort of, um, you know, the rumor mill goes around. You hear all kinds of horror stories. Yeah. Um, it, it also might have been the fact that we were four motorcycles and a big giant van that stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, but, you know, the for the most part, it was, I mean, I think we only had one instance where, uh, somebody tried to get a bribe out of us, and that was in um, Ecuador, Ecuador uh, police checkpoint in Ecuador. But other than that, we had we had we some of our best problems. encounters. Uh, we met some amazing people. Mario, this oh, guy yeah. just walked up to us and introduced himself as a motorcycle enthusiast, and mm-hmm. ended up putting us up at his plantation and cooking us a big barbecue dinner. And the at the point where you're most on your guard, and 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 prepared and kind of watching all your stuff and being super careful people walk up and say hey um nice to meet you and they they're genuinely want to learn about what it is you're doing yeah i think that's it people have a, an honest curiosity about what you're doing and no with no ill intent whatsoever that must be right. a that must be a great thing to feel that when people come up to you about that it, it w- was it was uh it was that was one of the most challenging things because when you get to border crossings and you are on your guard and you're trying to to be a little bit aware and then someone comes up and they're genuinely just interested in what you're doing. It's hard to let your guard down enough to, to, to realize why it is they're interested in you. Sure. I guess there wasn't much camping. I get, well, the the camping was certainly better at this point, right? Uh, well, no, I mean, it was warmer, but we actually through most, most of central America, we didn't do a lot of camping because we were always trying to find a place to, yeah. park the bikes that was secure it's yeah. so populous. it's it's difficult to find a remote secure place oh, okay camp. yeah and um th- so the border crossings uh once we left mexico the border crossings took all day i mean it was like a eight to twelve hour wow. affair as we yeah, got easily. further south it got easier and easier um with with panama being like costa rica into well costa rica was a dream um, going Costa Rica to Panama was was really uh, really easy, um, and then when, when then once we got into South America, it was a dream. I mean, it was the border crossings were really super organized and oh great. But, 
there's a there's a portion of Central America where the border crossings are pretty chaotic. You've got a lot of people, money changers are yelling at you. People are jumping on your car. You know, oh, do you need a do you need a fixer? You know, people are yelling at you. It's a little more chaotic, but um, and, and um, hostels and and budget lodging is is pretty readily available in sure. Central America. Yeah, and it's got secure parking, so it just solves a lot of problems to. Pay ten bucks to have to sleep indoors sometimes. Yeah. All right. So now you've reached the Darien Gap. <laughs> what now? How did that go? <laughs> well, the um, what I think a lot of people that that have maybe followed us on social media or have read about it don't. A lot of people don't realize that we didn't have actual permission to go through the Darien Gap until we showed up in Panama. So we. We got to Panama, and we were staying at uh, a friend of Simon's house in um, David, waiting there for a couple of days, trying to you know fix the bikes, do last minute maintenance, um, you know changing oil and all that stuff, and cleaning some of our gear and, and getting organized to go to to go into the Darien because it's a whole you know, you don't need to carry a sleeping bag and all that stuff. So we packaged all that stuff to get it ready to ship around. And so we were packing and we got a call saying, um, from a, a French guy that we knew in Panama city who was trying to get us permission or he's trying to get us a meeting with the Senate front, which is the, the border patrol. So he calls us up and says, Hey, good news. I've got a meeting, uh, set up with the commander, the commandant of Senefront. And um, I'm like, okay, great. When is it? And he goes, two hours from now. So we're like, oh. <laughs> so we jumped on the bikes, rode into Panama City. He's like, no, they want to meet all of you. They like, I, I thought, well, okay, a couple of us will go down. and yeah. yeah. No, no, they want to meet all of you. They want to see the bikes. They want to see everything. So we loaded everything up, drove into Panama City, uh, and had a meeting with the 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 commandant, um, I'm not sure that's his official title, but, um, and he just shook our hands. We got pictures with him. He gave us a letter saying that we had, you know, it was okay with him or no, I'm sorry. He didn't get a letter. We just got handshakes. And he, he said to us, the last thing he said to us was, um, yes, we will, you know, you, I'm okay with you going through the daring gap. Just once you get into Columbia, you're on your own. That's basically what he said to us. Really? Yeah, but the, the photo of him with us kind of proved yeah. to be key. Yeah, so we took you know did the selfie you know shaking hands and everything. Gave him a bottle of I don't know cognac or something, and um, and we left. We had already we had gotten permission from the Darien National Park. Uh, they said we could go through, and the local Kuna who the the villages their villages are kind of spread out all through the Darien. They're the indigenous people that um that live in the darien we were hiring one of their guides and some of their people from their village so they had given us permission to go through so w when we got into panama the only thing we were waiting for is whether or not the border patrol was going to let us go through um so they said yes and we loaded everything up and went down to yavisa which is where the road actually ends um and same thing happened they were like we got to Yavisa and they said, we want to meet everybody. We want to see all the bikes. You need to get permission from the battalion commander. So we're like, ah, here we go again. So we go into their compound and we're told we can't film. And we're told, you know, we got to wait for the commander to come out. 
and the commander's deputy kept telling us, "You can't go. It's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's too we, dangerous. We just had a aren't we just had a conflict at the border. There was shooting. Um, you can't go through." He just kept telling us, "No, no, no." And then, the, and then we showed him the picture, and we said, "Look, you know, the, the commandant said we could go through. Like, you know, here's us shaking hands with him." And and uh, a few minutes later, the battalion commander comes out and he says, "Okay, you can um, you can go through, but I'm going to send an armed escort with you." Wow. So so the next morning we show up, we load the boats up at five o'clock in the morning. We're loading the boats uh, to to head up river into the jungle, and there's a group of 20 armed guys, fully armed jungle patrol, and they yeah. rode all the way up with us. Armed oh, heavy, great. too. Like, yeah, they weren't playing. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into. I mean, you want me to just kind of give you a quick rundown of... Well, I, give me some examples of what you had to go through when you're going through the gap now. I mean, you, there's no roads. Uh, so how did you guys manage? Well, I, initially you take dugout canoes to to what constitutes the trail, but is really barely a footpath. You have to unload the bikes. And initially we started trying to ride them, and we made it maybe a mile um, before we lost the clutch on the first bike. Uh, clutch just the the mud is so thick that it just packs the rear wheel and the rear wheel won't even turn so he, he, every hundred meters you were having to clear out the brush and the mud and then try to ride the bike again and it would just pack it in again with mud um, clear the wheel out ride another hundred meters and then eventually we uh, on the the first day within the first mile rich Doring lost the clutch on his bike and we Laid it over, tried to pull it apart, tried to fix it, realized it was not happening. And, and it, at that point, we kind of had a, a little powwow, and, and Rich decided that it would be in everybody's best interest if he, if he turned around and went back out on the dugout canoe and then fly around to meet us on the other side. So we abandoned his bike in the, in the first mile. Well, you, yeah, of course, so, you, you took the bike out with him, right? No, no. no he Really? So, so as, as Simon had mentioned earlier, when the plan was to get to uh, Panama January 5th and to start into the jungle. We were about five days behind, so we actually started into the Darien January 10th. Um, but what we were hoping for was to catch sort of the leading edge of the dry season. It ended up raining every single day. So, oh. so rather than having a packed trail, a uh, packed footpath to try and maneuver the bikes on we ended up encountering a lot of heavy mud and it's hard to understand when you when you go and hike it you know you can go from yavisa where the pavement ends it took us two days by dugout canoe to get up to this village called paya and then from paya that's the last village before you get to the colombian border it's about a it's probably only about 25 miles from paya to the next village on the Colombian side. So we're only talking covering about 25 miles by land, right? right. Okay. But straight line distance. And and the Kuna, the Kuna Indians and the Winoan Indians who live in Colombia, they can walk that in two hours maybe, right? It doesn't take – I mean it's a footpath through the jungle. They can walk it really quickly. Uh, so when we landed in Paya with the bikes – um, again, it you know it rained every day, so what we thought would be a relatively hard-packed footpath was just mud, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's really kind of when the when the when the the real challenge began. And like Simon said, 
Uh, Rich Doring was our least experienced rider. He, he had never gone off-road, actually, on a motorcycle. And he was our oldest rider. So uh, within the first mile of him, him losing his clutch, he, he kind of decided that he was going to leave the bike. So we actually gave the bike to our guide. The bike is still in in Panama. Oh, no way. Uh, yeah, so he, he hiked back to the village, waited a couple days, took a boat back to Yavisa, and then and then uh, hitched a ride back to Panama City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by then, we were still moving forward with the other three bikes. We got we got to um, we got to within about a mile of the Colombian border, and we lost the clutches on the other bikes. All like three Simon of them. Said, yeah. Yep. So, like Simon said, you know, you could only go maybe about two hundred meters before there was so much mud and sticks and leaves and vines packed into the bike that you'd have to stop and take a stick and dig out, uh, and it just ate up the the bikes just ate them up pretty quick. Even, even after, even after the clutches went out and the bikes were no longer mobile, even just pushing the bikes, physically pushing the bikes, the wheels would pick up enough mud that they would clot up in 200 feet. So yeah. I, what, did, what did you do at this point? So were you carrying, pushing? How did you get the bikes through the rest of the gap? Uh, we, we drug them uh, the rest of the way, essentially. Yeah, wow. we, we had... Um, so our, in addition to our guide, uh, the the Kuna had sort of insisted that we hire uh, about 15 people. So we ended up hiring a guy with a chainsaw. He went ahead and cut, you know, trees and stuff out of the way. We had a couple uh, a couple locals clearing with machetes, and we took sort of took turns. Um, we had taken uh, pulleys and ropes with us. So we sort of took turns moving the bikes and carrying gear forward, gasoline, uh, food. We would we sort of did this really long, spread out sort Shuttle of system. shuttling system, right. where you know some of us took turns helping push the bikes, setting up the ropes, running the pulley, carrying stuff. Um, it was, I mean, it was really exhausting for us. The the locals, you know, those are they're in tremendous shape and they're used to the humidity and the heat and. So, they, I mean, they really pulled the majority of the weight, but we took turns, you know, helping out, carrying stuff forward, pushing on the bikes, pulling on the bikes, trying to come up with, you know, cleaning the tires out. And it, it really just became sort of several days of really, really tough. So from the, from the moment you entered the, the Darien Gap to the point where you came out the other end to your first paved road, about how many miles did you cover and how long did it take you? Well, um, so getting once we got into Colombia, um, the Kuna went back to their village and the Winoan, um, uh villagers came in from Colombia and helped out. Um, I guess it was probably the second day in Colombia we got down to a river system and decided that it was actually easier to pull the bikes through the river because it was shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that for a complete day, um, pulling the bikes down through the river, which was nice because we didn't have mud collecting in them. Just rolled um, them in the riverbed. Yeah. yeah. In the water. And Until then we got to another set of dugout canoes. Yeah. The, the, um, the villagers from Cristales, which is the Winone, um, 
or Wunan, I think is how they pronounce it, um, from that village sent boats up. So we were able to actually put the bikes on boats and get to the village that night. So in total, we were in the Darien eight days. Um, really? Oh, my God. The That night when we were in Crystallis, um, it was a little bit of tension because the villagers went to the nearby. There's a um, paramilitary group that lives up there. They they I don't know who they're officially affiliated with, but they used to be um, the what everybody calls the FARC, the revolutionary mm-hmm. paramilitary. They um, they gave us permission to stay that night in the village, but they wanted us out in the morning and they didn't want us flying our drone anywhere in the village. So uh, that next morning, we hired boats to take us downriver. Um, and I mean, that was a that was a challenging day. We we took the <laughs> we took the boats downriver, um, but once you hit the Atrato Swamp, the river goes from you know, five or six feet deep down to about four inches deep. So we ended up uh, unloading the bikes from the canoes, dragging the canoes and pushing the bikes through the swamp uh, until we got to a river that was deep and wide enough that we could reload everything. Wow. Um, (laughs) And then we we got out to the Atrato River um, and loaded into a bigger boat that we hired, and, and that boat took us from... Uh, the junction of the small Atrato and the big Atrato down to uh, the town of Turbo, which is where we hit pavement. And ended up spending a, a couple weeks there fixing the bikes. Even 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 contacting that bigger boat to get into Turbo was you, you deal with some sketchy characters. No, really? <laughs> yeah, they're uh, you know they're. Independent yachtsmen is how I would describe. <laughs> it, it, kind of, they, a, they run at night with no navigational lights on, or they're they're good at getting into turbo in the dark. Let's just say, you kind of imagine imagine a scene out of like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. We come out to this town that's built up on stilts. Okay, and you, you pull in with your dugout canoes, and there's men and women sort of lined up, you know, drinking whiskey and sort of staring at you and trying to figure out what's going on and you kind of walk around and go hey is there a boat captain somewhere around here i can hire a boat and that's pretty <laughs> much exactly how it went out uh so, so you're in the Darien gap for about a hundred miles give or take and it took you eight days yeah wow yeah. And that so- was with that was with the use of dugout canoes yeah, yeah. now what'd you do about i mean you, i guess you camped yep yep hammocks that must yep. have been miserable. Uh, you know, by the time we got to the hammocks broke out, I was just like, oh, it was great. Because you, um, you you typically kind of uh, hack out uh, an open space mm-hmm. in the jungle between the trees. Try to avoid the ants, the spiders, the scorpions, and the snakes. Make a bunch of noise. Excuse me. Make a bunch of noise. And then you set up your, your hammocks. And for me, I was exhausted. I mean, I was... Uh, yeah, I was I was spent every night. So by the yeah. time I got time to to pull the hammock out, I was ready for bed. And you just you're just wet and covered in mud the whole time. You just wow. Never. So so probably one of the two of the things that you were most looking forward to at that point is a shower and a soft bed, right? <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, I, I just really wanted a running motorcycle. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I love riding motorcycles, and I hate carrying them. They're, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's no fun when you're just pushing them. Did you have any unfortunate interactions with wildlife while you were in there? No, not really. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we, we actually. Saw, had... I mean, we saw a lot of scorpions, a lot of snakes, but fortunately, we saw them before anybody got bit or anything we, bad. I think the the actually the most annoying um, critter in the Darien is ants. Yeah, really. Because yeah, because um, you know, like a scorpion and spiders and stuff. You know, you you start moving around and they leave. Um, I had a couple times where I looked all over, made sure I wasn't putting my, my hammock up in an ant pile or anything. And the next morning, the, the ground is just blanketed with thousands of ants moving through or millions. And, you know, you don't realize that until you step down and they start biting you. And they're so, um, and they're so small that you really have to look hard to find them. And you'll be getting stung by something horrible, and you can't see it. So these are like fire ants or something like that? Yeah. yeah. They're ferocious. Ooh. Yeah, so I, I think that was probably, you know, I mean, we had howler monkeys, uh, you know, yelling at us from various locations. <laughs> and spider monkeys, I think it was a spider monkey out at the... Yeah, the capuchin monkey. Oh, capuchins, yeah. yeah. So as, as we're, you know... I, I mean, but the but we didn't really have any problems with the wild. I mean, we were making so much noise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and our our guides they, they live there. Yeah. You know yeah. they 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 live there. This this where they work every day. So they're. Yeah. Well, describe your sense of relief when you got to your first paved road. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well. <laughs> Okay, so first of all, what I was looking forward to was a hot shower, which you can't find in Columbia. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> they, don't, they don't do hot showers. Um, my wife is actually Colombian, so we joke about that all the time. But um, when we go down there, but um, it was turbo was really frustrating because here we are, we pull our bikes out of the jungle, and we've got paved roads, and we've got you know traffic, and we're in a hotel. And the frustration was that we had to basically sit there and yeah, wait for parts. Oh, my God. We yeah. couldn't fix the bikes. Um, when we did finally fix the bikes, um, I kind of messed up my 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 clutch install. And by messing up, I mean he, I let Simon do it. <laughs> I, um, I broke it. Yeah. So my bike actually got delayed quite a bit. So we had sort of a frustrating um, ten days. I think. We were yeah, it was about. It was. T- I think we were in. We were in Colombia for about twenty days. It put us. Oh my god! Behind, put us behind quite a bit because we got up to Cartagena, and we waited for um, the van to ship. And there had been really bad weather, so the van was delayed by about seven days. So it ended up. Columbia, I, I've, I've been to Columbia before with my wife and absolutely loved it. Um, and I thought these guys would love it too, but we ended up having so much frustration in Columbia that I think everybody was just really eager to get the bikes going and get out of town. So yeah. we ended up getting to Cartagena and um, we ended up renting, I think we ended up renting like a and b out at the beach. Yeah. which was beautiful and you'd think everybody would be like oh it's great yeah. you know it's we're in columbia on the beach and, but everybody was just really eager to nice. get on the road yeah 
and and, and <clears throat> Cartagena was expensive. It yeah, was expensive to be stuck there, and and we just it was it was it was. I think we were all just anxious to get going. I have to assume you ate well, though. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and so from Cartagena, we went directly to a place called uh, Philandia. And there's a, a motorcycle hostel there called um, Steel Horse. Steel Horse Philandia. Awesome, awesome British couple bought the place, turned it into a uh, kind of a expedition central sort of um, hostel. Definitely Actually, one of the little oasises that we yeah. stumbled yeah. upon. It's just amazing. Hot, only place in Columbia you can get a hot shower. I'm pretty convinced of that. Um, yeah, so that was really nice. We went and spent the night uh, there. Like-minded motorcycle people, yeah. world travelers, just kind of you. Beautiful. A cold beer, great food. Yeah. Like you're like, wow, where where did this come from? <laughs> and then, and then yeah, you I, ask yourself, we're going to leave this? Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's one place I do wish we'd stayed another day. I don't know what we've done <laughs> except eat and drink, but it would have been yeah. fun. Yeah, so then we that that was really kind of the reset. I think from there, um, yeah. we had a pretty good time riding through Columbia Head and South. Yeah, and the weather got better. And, well, of course, yeah. yeah. Now you're now you're getting to that time of year now. So now you're you're through Colombia and you're headed along the 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 west coast of South America. Uh, tell us some of the countries you went through uh, during that stretch: Ecuador, Peru, uh, Chile, Argentina. You went into yeah. Bolivia, didn't you? No, we didn't. No. We didn't go into Bolivia. No, because um, like I said, we were sort of. We had contemplated it, but we, because we were about 20 days delayed on on fixing the bikes, um, we ended up having to pretty much stick to the East Coast. We had um, I had friends in um, right outside of Santiago, Chile. Uh, so, and we wanted to go to Machu Picchu was was one of the big um, big items on our list of places we wanted to go. Um, I just couldn't. You know, I, I have an archaeology degree, so oh, nice. for people, like that was like we couldn't ride by Machu yeah. Picchu, right? Of course not. No, that was pretty cool. Too. Yeah, we went through Nazca. We went through um, what's the Atacama Desert? Rode through the Atacama Desert. So those are big things on our list. Um, I think one of the things that I think is worth mentioning that sort of took me by surprise was as we were crossing from Colombia into Ecuador was the number of refugees coming from Venezuela trying to get into Colombia to get jobs. I can imagine. Literally thousands of people. Lines wrapped two and three times around the, the immigration port. Just thousands upon thousands of people. And we're standing in this throng of refugees just trying to... We're going the other way. Yeah, I would, like, I would have never thought that you would have had any interaction with that since how Venezuela is east of Colombia. Yeah. Well, no, they so they let the um, the sort of flow of refugees that we encountered was um, some of them came into Colombia looking for jobs, but the ones that we encountered were going from Colombia into Ecuador, yeah. and most of them. So that's where we met the majority of them leaving Colombia, going into Ecuador, and most of those were trying to get south because they had basically heard that Chile and Peru. Or Peru, Chile, and Argentina had all the jobs, so right. it was a steady flow south. But where we really encountered a lot of them was uh, leaving Colombia, and 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 the Colombians had actually—it's my understanding that they had arranged buses 
that if they wanted to if they wanted to go into Ecuador and continue south, that they had arranged buses for them. And you know the the South American um, border crossings they have a much different take on um, immigration than we do. They basically don't care. <laughs> you know they'll they'll let you go in whatever country you want to go to work, and it's a, just a different philosophy than than we have. Wow, very interesting. Now, as far as it goes for all those countries you went through, I, now you were on the Pan American Highway for much of this, weren't you? Right. Mm-hmm. And how was that? Pretty good. I mean. I think um, it would vary a little bit from one country to another. Ecuador, surprisingly, I thought had some of the best highways we'd ever seen, including in America. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So did you make up any of that time you lost? Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, I think, um, well, you know, you get out to like the Atacama Desert and there's there's nothing nothing to do out there. Yeah, you just, you know, you're doing 65, 70 miles an hour and, and just, and so we did All make day. up some time, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we really wanted to hit the Carretera Austral in uh, Chile, in Argentina. So um, I think we sort of, well, we made up, we made up quite a bit of time going through, um, going through Peru because the northern part of Peru is not very scenic. Uh, it's desert and it's right. you know um, it's actually a lot of trash and a lot of um, it wasn't very it wasn't very appealing. So we made up a lot of time going through Peru. Um, we didn't spend much time in Ecuador, so made up a lot of time going through northern Peru. Um, we did a, about a five day detour to go up into Machu Picchu. Um, actually, in Philandia in Colombia, they had told us about this route that you could go. To Machu Picchu, where you basically go to this town called Hydroelectrica. Okay. So you okay. ride this mountain trail up into the, kind of the back door to Machu Picchu, and then instead of paying a four hundred dollar train ride, you hike the train tracks up to uh, this little um, village that's sort of the tourist town at the base of Machu Picchu. Right. And we found a cheap hostel to stay there, and then we uh, went up the next day. Um, to the ruins and then kind hiked of in and hiked out, stashed the bikes and hiked up. Yeah. So that was a three or four day excursion there. And then, um, and then we were from there, we were heading into, into Santiago, Chile to hang out with some friends of ours. Mm-hmm. Now you had a, did you have to pass over any mountain ranges as you were going through Chile and, uh, through, uh, Peru? Oh, sorry. Yeah. The Andes. And yeah. How, yeah. How did, how did that treat you? I just, uh, we went over, over fifteen thousand feet. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple paths. We did encounter snow in in Peru. Yeah, yeah, we had some pretty chilly. Uh, getting into Cusco, Peru, was a uh, was it was yeah. pretty high altitudes. That was um, another thing about the KLRs. We took them over fifteen thousand feet, and they handled it just fine. We didn't do any jetting changes on the carburetors. We just drove them stock, like we ridden them the whole way. And I mean, there was definitely some power loss yeah but they did it any difficulty with the altitude as far as it goes for you know personally or physical yeah everybody had a headache and wasn't feeling very well and we're dragging a little bit yeah the uh the peruvians make their coca tea which <laughs> we try and uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it was i, I wholeheartedly recommend if you've got a few problems for sure especially when it's cold especially yeah. when it's cold 
<laughs> yeah, we, we spent uh, a couple nights in Cusco. Uh, we have a, a friend of ours who's a researcher at Machu Picchu. So he kind of gave us a private presentation on the history of it. And spent a couple days there. So we got a little bit of climatization before we went up to Machu Picchu. But. Oh, there you go. All right. Now, at this point, are you starting to see the weather going back the other direction now? In w- once yeah. we hit once we headed south of Santiago, yeah, we started getting high winds and rain, and the whole Carretera Austral is right along the coast. So we did get a lot of rain, and um, by the time we made it down into Ushuaia, we it was pretty chilly nights. It was I getting, mean, yeah, starting to get some intermittent snowing and stuff again, and yeah, definitely saw it going back to winter. So now here you are in the home stretch, and I, did did your fourth member finally meet back up with you again? At this point, you're you're all back together. The whole group's back together now. No, Rich. Uh, Rich rejoined us in Cartagena. He actually. So once we lost the other three clutches, I was able to send a message via uh, Delorum Inreach. I actually sent him a text message and told him, hey, we're, we lost the other three clutches, but we're moving forward to Columbia, and asked him if he could meet us with clutch plates. So he ended up, because the, the big motorcycles, it's hard to find parts for big motorcycles in South America. I mean, a big motorcycle to them is like a 250. Wow. So, yeah. so we we kind of tried to find parts and couldn't, so... Rich actually had gone back to Panama City, got my message, called my wife, who called our local Kawasaki dealership in my hometown, and they mailed him, they overnighted him three, four packs of clutches, right? Yeah, four packs of clutches. They overnighted him in Panama City. He bought an airline ticket and flew to Columbia with clutch packs. And met us. Uh, by the time we got there, he met us, and we started working on the bikes. So that's and then and then from Columbia, he ended up flying home. Oh, really? Okay. So and at this point now, it's just the three of you is headed down to Tierra del Fuego. Um, was there any? Uh, I guess the excitement was building at this point because you're getting close to the end, huh? You, you know, I, I think the the Patagonia stretch was was kind of. Uh, Chile and Argentina was so again amazingly beautiful and spectacular and something we'd uh, kind of read about and, and and researched a little bit and were curious to see. So it was sort of it didn't really want it to end. You know, it was just it was mind blowingly scenic and and the riding was just the most spectacular riding you can imagine and it and was good and we had you know we gotten the really most challenging part out of the way it was now it was kind of like let's keep the bikes together and just try to get it done yeah well the bikes running good at this still at this point a little, a little, a little bit of apprehension it was like are we really gonna finish it <laughs> <You know? laughs> but the bikes were doing good now at this point yeah 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 for me it was um i mean it's a mixed emotions for me you know i have a wife and kids at home and um i wanted to get it done just because it was sort of one of those things on the bucket list you know, I wanted to go from tip to tip, go through the Daring Gap. And so there was that, you know, that that eagerness to get it done. Yeah. But also, you know, you know, it is riding a motorcycle. You'll see a side road and you're like, oh, man, I wonder where that goes. You know, we we went out to Mount Fitzroy and, and hiked around a little bit. And you always just kind of want to know, what's, like, what's over the next hill. 
so there was a bit of that, you know, we, we wanted to see Ushuaia. We wanted to get to the finish line, but we were also, you know, we're at heart, we're motorcycle riders. So you yeah. kind of just want to keep going. I only had five months off of work though. So I had to get back and I kind of had a timeline that I was working off of. So a little, a little bit of dread that you have to go back and go back to work. And- yeah. Go back to real life at this point. Yeah. So now you've reached, now was it uh, Tierra del Fuego you got to, or was you Ushuaia? Ushuaia, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what was the first thing you did after you arrived? Took her helmet off. Took her helmet off. <laughs> was there any celebration or massive, cyber, yeah. <laughs> massive <laughs> size of relief or anything like that? It was kind of anticlimactic, I think, really? is the word that we keep yeah. using. It's like, um, oh, okay. now what? <laughs> yeah. And yep. plus, we still had to turn around and drive back to um, Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. No kidding. So you went from Ushuaia up back up to Buenos Aires. Yeah, the bikes home. How 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 long did that take? We did it in like three days. We were done. <laughs> <laughs> wow! See, I didn't know yeah, that. Three or four days. There's a sense of relief when you get it done, um, but you know it. It's tough as a motorcycle rider. You're like, you know, I could definitely see making that a lifestyle. Like, I'm just gonna because yeah. people do. Yeah, I'm gonna spend. Oh, I have a lot of respect for Sam Monicum and uh, Ed March, and I mean, I, I follow those guys on social media. And, yeah, and and the folks that that you know are like that's all I keep thinking about is like, okay, where am I going next? Like, how can I do the next? How can I make the next trip happen? Um, and I love following those guys and seeing their photos and. I think that's um, one of the most frustrating things for me is you meet people and they go, oh, isn't that the trip of a lifetime? And you're like, well, no, it's one of the trips of my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It. It's not It's not the defining trip. We're, we're constantly planning the next one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah, I, I, wanna, I briefly want to talk about the crew. Uh, how many guys uh, did you have on the crew and what was who were they? Well, um, like I mentioned before, we had uh, the we had started out with the four riders. Uh, Simon Edwards, the team medic, Mike Eastham, um, and uh, Rich Doring, and then myself riding. And then in Alaska, well, for the entire trip, um, we had this uh, we had this big van that the camera crew was using. Um, so the driver of that was uh, Lou Lewis Browning. Uh, he was a, a friend of mine from the Park Service, a coworker that. Um, just happened to find himself off for the for the winter, so um, he came and drove for us. And then uh, the two primary camera crew that was with us the entire time, Alex Mann is a still photographer, um, really really good, really amazing quality army um, uh, camera. combat camera guy and still photographer. And then Jake Hamby, who it was really his brainchild. The, like his, the the whole documentary has been his. Um, his uh, his vision. So he filmed almost most of it uh, completely by himself. I mean, he carried a hundred pound backpack through the Darien Gap with you know camera equipment and audio equipment and just um, amazing kid who's really um, really kind of take took the lead on making this film and it was really his idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we he, he enlisted the help of um two other guys uh parker um gorkies and uh mike crowley um or cowley sorry we always i always, I always mess his last name <laughs> uh, mike cowley 
so they were both um, Air Force combat camera guys. Right. And uh, Parker brought a whole host of drone equipment up to Alaska. So they helped film from uh, uh, the Dalton Highway portion in November. And then uh, Mike um, Cowley came back uh, to South America and helped film sort of the finish line. So that was really the core of the team. But um, in the Darien portion... And most of it was just uh, one camera guy with one guy with a video video camera. Yeah. Now, did you have a did you have the van down in South America? Yeah, yeah. We shipped it from um, uh, Cologne, Panama, to uh, Cartagena. Okay, so you had that. And how was that? Uh, so I guess I I imagine you got, you brought that back with you. I imagine. Yeah. No. Okay. Wow. And, and I, I tell you, it's um, it's a blessing and a curse to have a, a vehicle following you. Um, the, uh, it was slower than the bikes. It couldn't maneuver in traffic as well. Um, makes stealth camping really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) You're really limited. Um, you're really limited what you can do, but you know, the, for me, uh, originally we hadn't envisioned having a support vehicle, uh, at the very beginning, but, um, originally Jake was going to be on a motorcycle because he's also a KLR owner. Um, and and I think as he became more passionate about the film project and uh, we became more interested in sort of the, the idea of making a, a, a kind of a motivational motorcycle film, um, he he got more and more behind the idea of, of being in a support vehicle so he could make a little better product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. That's really amazing. So in total, uh, do you know the closing stats of the entire trip as far as it goes for Beginning to end, miles, days, hours, cost, etc. Oh my God, cost! <laughs> if my, my girlfriend hears that, yeah. that might be the end of any future projects. <laughs> we don't wife. talk about cost. It's tax season. Yeah, it's pretty funny because I mean, you know, we get a lot of questions and a lot of comments about you know we must have had a fat bankroll for this, and you know. The mo- there's not much money in the motorcycle industry, so most of it comes out of your private pockets. But um, I think uh, it's five months. Five months. Five months is a pretty round figure. I mean, it was. Um, what did we finish? April fourth. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so it was some somewhere around there. So I um, November to April. So it was five months, and we did uh, a total of nineteen thousand five hundred miles. Wow. Now <laughs> there's some additional mileage on there that we didn't count. When we started, we left Colorado, drove up to uh, uh, Dead Horse, Alaska, then started the trip. And then once we got to Ushuaia, we turned around and drove back to Buenos Aires. So there's some additional mileage. But the actual motorcycle, quote unquote, expedition was 19,500 miles. So you're probably over 21,000 miles then. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. But but as far as it goes for for cost, you you can't even – put a tag on that can you well i mean as far as fuel goes i the van is a astronomical i mean it got like nine miles to a gallon it's horrible but um i think i spent in fuel for the klr i want to say i spent around four thousand for gas um we spent some quite a bit of money getting through the darien gap um you know we paid the guides we paid for boats we paid for fuel (coughs) and food and stuff in the darien um, yeah, so I mean, I, 
and then if you're if you're going to ship something around the Darien Gap, you can do it relatively cheap for a couple thousand dollars, but um, wow. or under a thousand dollars if it's a motorcycle. Wow! Then uh, you're willing to wait and organize yeah, it and, and wait. Spend yeah. Time. yeah. Wow. Uh, as far as it goes for uh, the, the the trip itself, the, would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I knew you were going to ask that question, and I, I, with this same trip, probably not. I wouldn't. No. Okay. I, another trip? Oh, yeah. With the same yeah. complex challenges? Yeah. In a different place? Yeah, for sure. At tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'll ne- I'd, I'd never go in the Daring Gap again. I'd never go again. in the Gap again. I mean, never. It's just a brutal place. <laughs> not worth it. Um, but. Like I would do, like my wife and I talk about it pretty regularly. Like I would do the trip again, um, in a heartbeat with my wife, but I would, I mean, you could, you could easily spend two years going from North to South and not see everything. Um, I would do, I would do, uh, Central and South America again. Um, but I would take a year. I mean, I would take at least a year to do, uh, Central and South America. I mean, you could take a year just doing Central America. Yeah, because there's a lot to see. And you know, we, you, oh you, you, you have five months to do this, and you're blowing by everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, not blowing by everything, but you definitely have to pick and choose. Yeah, uh, certainly. Stop. Yeah, yeah. And we we made a because I'm an archaeology geek, right? So we made a couple stops that were sort of like I nagged the nagged the group, like, can we go here? Can we go here? Um, but. We missed. I mean, there's so much you miss that uh, you could live your life down there and not see it all. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. So, how many tires did you guys go through? Ooh, ooh. Uh, four sets. Four sets. Yeah. Each. Four sets each. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. That's yeah, pretty we, good. We only, I think we only had two flats. Yeah. Yeah. We ran the Dunlop uh, 606s, the standards that come off yeah. of the KLR. All right. Okay. And I was pretty impressed with them. Yeah. I mean, they're a, a little bit more aggressive, knobby, but I thought they did pretty good on yeah, the highway. Real, I mean, good durability. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's something to be said for the stock standard tires that come on most motorcycles. You know, they're they're chosen for a reason. You know. Yeah. They, so how did now tell us about some of the sponsors you had and how the support was that they gave you? Well, Dunlop was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, actually, we got free tires from Dunlop, um, and uh, let's see, list of sponsors. So our primary sponsor was Gerber Gear, um, the knife manufacturer out of Portland, Oregon. Right. They actually provided us with the van that we ended up using. Um, it was a E350 van that had been converted to four-wheel drive, and pretty pretty awesome truck, uh, except for the gas mileage. Mm-hmm. Um so Gerber was our primary sponsor. Um, Revit provided us riding gear. Uh, we actually had uh, Quicksilver, which is a company owned by Mercury uh, Motors. So Mercury, they actually loaned us some um, uh, or gave us some boat motors to use in the Darien um, and a whole bunch of you know lubricant products and stuff. So uh, those were the primary sponsors. And then um, so Revit, Dunlop, uh, Gerber, Kawasaki. Kawasaki gave us the KLR 650s. It was oh, sort really? of their, oh, yeah. Okay. It was sort of their um, their going away tribute to the KLR yeah. because they continued it now. So um, yeah, they gave us four brand new bikes, which ended up really saving us because um, they had zero miles when we got them, 
and um, aside from the clutches, they 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 handled and performed brilliantly. Um, and then uh, yeah, twisted throttle was um, provided as a bunch of the equipment for the bikes. Um, Sergeant seats. Oh yeah, those are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It makes a big difference when you're riding on a sergeant seat as opposed to the stock yeah. um, bike seat. Right. And uh, let's see. I mean, there was a whole bunch of the veterans. There was, yeah. a, there was a host of people who contributed stuff that we used the whole trip. Yeah, Moto Skivvies. Uh, Sean is a, a friend of ours. We've known him for quite a few years. Uh, when he started up Moto Skivvies, we've always um, used his products and and um and i you know like the veterans of foreign war they they sponsored us um uh and then a, just a ton of people on on social media um a lot of we did a uh a, a uh, um gofundme camp or not it wasn't gofundme it was um uh, we did we did a uh a crowdfunding campaign to raise the money for the camera equipment that Jake used right. on the trip. So, um, and a lot of people contributed to that. Uh, Warren Industries gave us some um, some winches for the bikes and the sidecars. Yeah. How about the drones? Of- what drones did you use? <laughs> DJI Mavic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> DJI I think camera was, uh, stuff. The, yeah. The camera, camera. The, and how were they? Were they good? Um, well, Canon. So um, Canon loaned us a couple pieces of equipment. They loaned Jake some camera equipment. So um, he shot everything on a um, 5D, I think, uh, for the camera, uh, Canon yeah. 5D. And um, so they loaned us some some lenses and things like that. And then we used uh, he used a DJI drone. Um, He's feeding me information from downstairs. I can hear him yelling it. Um, uh, and and then everything else was just um, you know handheld uh, handheld stuff. Do you use GoPros at all? Yeah, we did. Some of the better crashes are GoPro. Uh, some <laughs> better. Some of the better. So aside from. Um, Aside from Rich getting hit by a car in Canada, what? Only, yeah, he got he got sideswiped by a car that lost control and um, and took out the side of his bike in Canada. But other than that, the only crash we had two crashes in a row. Um, <laughs> two days. One day, I hit Simon and bent up his left pannier, uh, and then the very next morning, Simon rear-ended me and bent my left pannier so we had matching <laughs> um and those were both caught on gopro so and that was the that was the only two accidents three all three accidents you had right during the whole well, trip. aside from simon going off his bike a few times yeah other than that but yeah they <laughs> still were. thank white bots that's not yeah. really well you know <laughs> he's your stunt rider we understand that yeah. um so uh, the biggest question i have to ask right now is what we know what happened to one of them, but what happened to the other three KLRs? Well, one of them, one of them is in the Darien. Um, in I'm I assume it's still in the village of Paya. If you're if you're hiking into the Darien Gap, you could probably go take a picture with it. Um, one of the bikes is in Alaska. Mike Eastham actually 
shipped his bike home and uh, with the sidecar, so it's complete uh, in Eagle River, Alaska. And then the other two bikes were sold in Argentina. Wow. Okay. Had the money to fly him home. Yeah. Oh wow. Hey, is any any melancholy sadness there that you guys don't have him? Yeah, I, oh, I actually, yeah. I'm kind of bummed that I didn't yeah. bring mine home. But. <laughs> I, I think we'll miss it at some point. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, how can people learn more about the movie? And is it well, is it available now? Uh, it's in post production right now, so we're working with a company out of England, uh, hopefully bringing that to the market. Um, Right now, what we're doing is basically updating. Uh, we'll be updating our website. It's where the road ends moto.com. Mm-hmm. And then on Facebook is also where the road ends uh, motorcycle documentary. So, any updates to the film, as soon as we have a trailer, hopefully we'll be sharing that on social media. Uh, we also have an Instagram account, also where the road ends moto. And those are the three avenues to kind of uh, keep track of the film progress and when it comes to market. Okay. When do you hope that's going to be out? Uh, we're hoping to have it by next winter. Okay. So now, is this going to be a limited release in theaters or is this going to be a DVD thing only? Well, we're hoping to get it on a streaming platform, um, but we would, uh, we, I mean, we'd like to do a, a, a release in theaters, but it's kind of pending the, Pending the outcome of uh, getting some kind of distribution deal. But basically what we're hoping to do is everybody has a great summer uh, riding this year. And then next winter when they're sitting around the house, uh, can't ride their motorcycles, they'll be able to watch it. Get your next motivation by watching. (laughs) (laughs) So you're hoping this by winter 2019, right? That's Yeah, that's what we're hoping. Excellent. Uh, Any advice for those who might want to be seeking out an adventure like this? Go. Go do it. Don't, yeah. Don't don't wait. Yeah. What you're afraid of is your fear. So get on your bike and ride there. Right. And take yeah. your time, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Take your time would be my advice. If you can do it. Um, but you know, we met we met a lot of people that are just getting into riding. We met a lot of people that have been riding for years and always wanted to do uh, South America. I would say don't. Um, don't let your lack of Spanish language skills or your lack of writing experience um, deter you. Just plan some time and go do it. You'll, you know, you're gonna meet you're gonna meet people that'll help you out along the way. That's just sort of the nature of the motorcycle community. And um, I, I do want to shout out really quick to the KLR Club in Costa Rica. <laughs> Those guys are amazing. We had an awesome night partying with them. Um, they helped us with everything from tire changes, gave us a place to stay. Excellent. Um, Amazingly hospitable just, people. And we ran into people like that all over the place. Excellent. Um, so yeah. I'd say throw up a page on social media, join some of the groups that have a lot of advice, and yeah. just get out there and do it. Get on your bike and ride, ride there. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast as Wayne Mitchell and Simon Edwards. Uh, the team medic and stunt guy. <laughs> but I want to thank you guys for joining me here in the podcast and telling us all about the trip. I really look forward to seeing this when it does finally come out. Uh, and I'll, I'll be broadcasting this like crazy. So thank you very much. Thanks, awesome, Ted. Ted. Thank okay. you.
Thanks for joining Wayne, Simon, and myself here on episode 189, where we talked about the Where the Road Ends adventure and movie. To learn more, go to wheretheroadendsmoto.com. Links will be in the show notes and on the Motorcycle Men website at motorcyclemen.us. And don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, and vloggers whose links you'll find on our links page. All of these media outlets and many more out there do great things to promote and encourage our sport and passion. And also, don't forget to get over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel and check out the new Ted Shed series, and you get to see me tear my bike apart and put it back together. That's going on right now. Uh, episode 10 should be available very shortly. So, from Tim Buck to Chris the Joker and Justin Shoes, and me, Ted Wrongway, your host, thanks for listening to the Motorcycle Men podcast, where we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids.